by the favor of the gods, may I, unharmed, be teller of the things that I have heard and what is wrapped in the darkness here below. Brandeis University. Welcome to Recall This Book. Right now being recorded in Lexington, Massachusetts. It's my very great pleasure to introduce you to a conversation with two poets, the poet David Ferry and the poet Roger Reeves. David Ferry, who is a relation of mine, I'll start out by saying, is the Sophie Chantal Hart Emeritus Professor at Wellesley College. He is translator of numerous things, including the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Odes of Horus, the Epistles and Georgics of Virgil, and Virgil's Aeneid, as well as several of his uh, own books, including Bewilderment, which won the National Book Award for Poetry in 2012. Roger Reeves earned his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, where he's currently a professor, and he's the author of King Me by Copper Canyon Press from 2013, winner of the Larry Levis Reading Prize, the Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Literary Award, and numerous other awards. Um, his second book collection of poetry is forthcoming. Roger, forthcoming or already arrived? Uh, March 2022. All right. We'll be uh, in the world as of March 2022 from W.W. Norton. So this uh, episode really comes out of a series of conversations that that these two poets have been having and that I've had the good fortune to have with them on the topic of the underworld and the underworld in their poetry. So what we'd like to do today is hear from their poetry and then a little bit about some of the lines, uh, some of the presences of underworlds within the poems themselves, and uh, we'll see where that takes us. Okay, so uh, without further ado, we're going to start with David Ferry, and he's going to read a selection from book six of the Aeneid. Thanks, Elizabeth. And hi, Roger. Hey, David. Uh, I want to start with a passage from uh, 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 Aeneid's, uh, from Virgil's Aeneid, and it's a passage where Aeneas as entering the underworld, seeking the, the shade of his father Anchises in order to have Anchises uh, tell him what is going to happen in the, in the, uh, in the uh, adventure and mission of founding Rome to supplace the, uh, the Troy that they've lost. And he is He's entering the underworld with a sibyl, and he's scared to death about what's going to happen. Uh, and I think that fright is in all the missions of what I'm just going to read. You gods who rule the kingdoms of the spirits, you tongueless shades, you phlegathon and chaos, you silent spreading regions of the dark, by the favor of the gods, may I, unharmed, be teller of the things that I have heard and what is wrapped 
in the darkness here below. Well, this is the verse is uh, iambic pentameter with many uh, anapestic variations, but in the lonely gloom of the night, two figures walk through the empty rooms of Dis's empty kingdom, as if upon a path beneath the uncertain, meager light of moon, almost not there, at a time when Jupiter has hidden the sky in darkness and black night has taken away from all things, all the colors that they had just at the innermost end of the entrance court, just at the place where, or, or, uh, where Orcus's jaws are open, there's grief. There's unrelenting cares. Bears have, have played, placed their beds. There's ashen-faced disease, sad age. There's fear, there's hunger, begetter of crime. There's death and his brother's sleep and guilty desires. And on the other side of the open door, there's war, dealer of death. And there, they're in the, the cells of the Furies and insane discord with bloody ribbons in her snaky hair. In the midst, there is an enormous shadowy uh, plane tree spreading its arms and, and, and false dreams clinging under every single leaf of its foliage, so men say, and also many forms of, of, of monstrous creatures, uh, centaurs staring at the, the threshold there, and by form Scylla's and Briarius, hundred-headed, hundred-handed, fifty-headed, and, the, and the, the striding, hissing beast of Lerna, and the, the, the chimera breathing fire, and harpies, and he, the three-bodied shade, Aeneas, trembling, terrified at the sight, un, uh, un, unsheathes his sword and turns its edge against them, and he would, had not his sage companion told him that these were bodiless, empty images of life, have slashed at the fleeing shadows which he saw. In a way, it's like, in these lines, like a description of just nighttime. Mm. Jupiter hides it, and, and, and for us at night, nighttime, the underworld itself one, is, seeps into our dreams and, is, and, and it's there. He's descending into hell, yes, literally and rightly, but also he's, a, he's descending in the way at, at, at nighttime comes and and he encounters the whole conditions of of uh, vulnerable 
human life, sad age, grief, cares, uh, hunger, destitution, the, the failures of, of individuals and of societies and so and so on. And uh, as I hear it in the lines, they, there's grief. And then it's as if they're looking another place. There's unrelenting cares where they have placed their beds. There's ashen-faced disease. With each there, it's them experiencing yet another image and so on too. Virgil's opportunity to talk about uh, uh, Aeneas's knowledge that all oh, the culture that he's trying to replace with the culture of of uh, of Rome, uh, of the, the culture that fallen Troy had, was a place full of cares, full of death, full of uh, full of age, full of. Uh, of desire of of of, of uh, desires uh, and uh, and Rome is going to be like that too. It makes a desire to found to found the great culture of Rome know about itself already and its vulnerability. It's it's so interesting because when I hear this particular moment in in a section in section six. Uh, I can't help but think about how the lyric tradition comes out of this moment. This this sort of moment with that deictic there, that sort of deictingness. I'm thinking about um, Jonathan Culler's sort of theory of the lyric, right? And um, other things I've read about how sort of the epic, there, there are moments that the, that uh, we can think about the lyric tradition, right? Because the epic was the, the real, that was the like legit poetry, right? That was the real, and the lyric was kind of like this bastard, like, you know, to the side form that wasn't really a form yet. Um, but it's so, to me, there's this moment where that 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 listing that occurs, that cataloging um, sounds, uh, that cataloging f feels for me to be quite, uh, it, it sort of feels like a departure, a, a sort of, even though it's, a, it's describing what they're seeing, it sort of takes over. Um, and almost itself becomes. You mean the cataloging of grief and hunger and disease? It it, be, it almost overwhelms. Yeah. The poem it it, it becomes this thing, right? It, it's a list. It's part of you know what they're seeing, but it also has this sort of something else is occurring. Um, yeah. The type of singing of that type of grief that to me um, feels very lyric. Feels like oh, this is the harbinger to the lyric. Um, uh -huh into the possibility of like the lyric utterance. Well, the, the there's grief and there's this, it's very theatrical, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of like setting the stage. Well, it reminds me of Dante in that moment in the Inferno. And I think like, I see this from, it's funny because I see it in Dante, I see it in Virgil, and I even see it in hip hop, which is this moment where the speaker, uh, the poet, Right, is like okay. I'm a poet. I'm letting y'all know, and and I've been called to do this great thing. I've been called to re to reveal, right? And like I think about when Dante is like, uh, he sees the poets, the dead poets, and they're like, "Come up, you are one like us. Come over here." And he's like, "Oh, I'm a great poet, right?" Like he in that moment sort of puts himself in the realm of the great poets. So there's a way in which to me it's like in hip hop when uh, rappers will be like, "I'm the best." 
da da da. Right? It's, 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 you know. I think that genealogy, Roger, you're tracing is great, though. The kind of you know now you know it's almost like I've got the mic now, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, Dad, um, do you would you like to now read Resemblance? Oh, this is a poem of mine from my book Bewilderment. Wait a minute. Oh, God. The poem is called Resemblance, and it comes from a really uncanny experience I had. <clears throat> my family, my father's family, had a had a burial plot in a in a cemetery in uh, West Orange, New Jersey. I grew up in Maplewood nearby. Uh, and uh, I went down after my, the death of my parents to take their ashes down to this graveyard and give them an honorable burial there. And then, uh, uh, and then I, I badly needed to go get lunch and get a drink and, and uh, recover from that sad experience. And I went into a restaurant nearby in Central Avenue and, uh, and there, I swear to God, there, uh, sitting at a table with some other figures, was what looked identically like my father. Hmm. And, uh, and he was sitting with some other, some other people. And so that's, uh, uh, people remark on this, you know, kind of experience of resemblance, especially when you, you're, uh, uh, thinking of your dead beloveds or your dead relatives, and uh, so on. It was my father in that restaurant on Central Avenue in Orange, New Jersey, where I stopped for lunch and a dinner after coming away from visiting after many years had passed the place to which I brought my father's ashes and the ashes of my mother and where my father's grandparents, parents, brothers had been buried and others of the family all together. The atmosphere was smoky and there was a vague struggling transaction going on between the bright daylight of the busy street outside and the somewhat dirty light of the unwashed ceiling globes of the restaurant I was in. He was having lunch. I couldn't see what he was having, but he seemed to be eating, maybe without noticing whatever it was he may have been eating. He seemed to be listening to a conversation with two or three others, shades of the dead, come back from where they were to where they went away, or maybe those others were, were uh, weren't speaking at all. Maybe it was a dumb show put on for my benefit. It was the eerie persistence of his not seeming to notice that I was there while watching him from my table across the room. It was also the sense of his being included in the, in the conversation around him, and yet not. Though this in life had been familiar to me, no great change from what had been true before, even in my sense that I, 
across the room was excluded, which went along with my sense of him when he was alive, that he often didn't feel included in the, in the scene and talk around him, and his isolation itself excluded others. Hmm. When we were, where were we in that restaurant that day? Had I gone down into the world of the dead? Were those other people really shades of the dead? We expect that in the, if they came back, they would come back to impart some knowledge of what it was they had learned. Or if this was included down there, then they down there would, would reveal to us who visit them uh, in a purified language some truth in our condition of being alive. We are unable to know. Their tongues are ashes when they'd speak to us. Unable to know is a condition I've lived with all my life. Poverty of imagination about the lives of another human being. This is, I think, the case with everyone. Is it because there's a silence that we are all of us forbidden to cross? Not only the silence that divides the dead from the living, but antecedent to that is that the silence there is between the living and the living, mm. unable to reach across that silence through uh, the, the baffling light there always is between us. Among the living, the body can do so sometimes, but the mind constricted, inhibited by ancestral knowledge of the final separation holds back, unable to complete what it was, what it was, what it, what it wanted to say. What is your name that I can call you by? Virgil said when Eurydice died again, there was still so much to say that had not been said even before her first death from which he had vainly attempted with his singing to rescue her. And that's part of what in the other passage, I think from the Aeneid that he, he goes down into the underworld to find out what it's like down there. And it's not a special instance in a sense that he finds, he finds the conditions of mm -hmm. our culture, that age, yeah. fear, war, wasting away, and so on. And also the, the, the great accomplishments of the culture he's endeavoring to preserve in the Aeneid and going to Rome. And there's a corollary in your poem in that same way, 
uh, in that you have the dead come back and you say, we expect that if they came back, they would come back to impart some knowledge of what it was they had learned, right? But they're just eating. And I find this such a, a great defamiliarization of the way we think of the dead entering in the poem. They're just eating. They're just like doing some regular, like banal, and they, and they don't do that. And so it's such a, in some ways they are telling us something, right, in that moment. They, they are, they may be, but they, but, but, uh, not, but it may just be. There we are. We are what we are what mm -hmm. we used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and the line that in some ways I find uh, uh, central to the poem is their tongues are ashes mm -hmm. when they speak to us and so on. And that in a way goes back to another poem I translated, a poem of Catullus when he went to visit the grave of his brother in Asia Minor, and he says, speaking, speaking to, seeking to speak to ashes that mm -hmm. cannot speak. It's also interesting to trace the tongues from the first poem, right? Because the yeah. shades were tongueless in the first poem, right? The gods, right? But these, the, the dead here, the departed here, they do have to, but their tongues are ashes. So it's it's this like we're always in the state of moving towards sort of an absented tongue, an absented speech. And so like it's so interesting because I was like mapping the tongues and mapping sort of what's happening in terms of speech. And 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 yeah. and it's only really the living that speak in that way. And and that actually connects to, I mean, I can't figure out why I find the words. Virgil said so mm -hmm. important, mm -hmm. but I think, especially when it's, you know, Virgil said there was still so much to say, mm -hmm. right? So Virgil said that the things could not be said, but I think maybe it gets at this question of, you know, you talked dad about, about our, our culture, our, our human culture, and it's kind of, you may find this too strong, but it's sort of inadequacy, and yet it's kind of maybe heroism or or just just sort of the saying, the the poetry as as to kind of doing this, planting this little flag or doing what it can against this inadequacy or to kind of mark. It's Virgil said, and the great moment in the poem is because he dared to go down to the underworld, and uh, and what he found down there was us, mm -hmm. uh, with our limitations. And it's not just Virgil said this, but but the prior poet, the father of all poets, in some way, uh, 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 Orpheus. Mm. And, uh, and Eurydice. Yeah, that makes me want to read this poem that I sent to you for today. I feel like uh, the poem, I feel like I should read this poem right now. Yeah. And um, in, in this poem, I'm imagining uh, two sort of mythological worlds, the world of Grendel and 
and Beowulf and the world of Orpheus and Eurydice as well. And the world of Orpheus and Eurydice, that they're like living, like there's this like sort of space in which they're all together. Uh, So this is called Grendel's mother. It was not like the woman who had come out of hell, haired and furred in black earth, smelling of fire, her lover, green and brown in the green and brown field, his back a torn limb broken from the tree of her, ripped the gesture of his uneven walking, his refusal to turn to her who called to him, mouthing the oar, oar of his name, as if she were giving his waiting away from her through the tall grass, a counter, offer, argument, me, turn, turn to me, to us. And in that leaving gesture of a ripped limb, he turned to her, to us, and even the ram who drove his skull into the rocks stopped his thinking and watched the woman yanked back down into the earth's black holler and soil and so was outside of thinking so furious so furious i was when my son called to me called me out of heaven to the crag and corner store where it was that he was dying. Mama, I can't breathe. Even now I hear it, the limb of him broken in the black beast bird's morning call that pins the heaven to the black road. I can't breathe and the waters curve and slur over the narrow paths in the trail and gutter his body made in the mud where the sky barges in and fills. It was not like the woman who had come out of hell, Orpheus unable to touch her. I touched my son in his dying where he was crushed, carn, blood belt of the dying earth and without song other than my feet shuffling in the dead leaves, which is not the song I wanted to give to his dying, to his dark and darkening ear. The day opening, sun warming stone and the musk of it, where the river flowers bleed their yellow scent on the water ever, even ever, in its any and always, in its absence of meekness, which is to say, God, I wanted for him a hunger outside of heaven. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And of course, it's it's partly because of the, it's, memorializing a terrible event that it's that it's talking about in it without without any uh, uh, 
self-tried in a sense that, that so often poems that memorialize great events that in some way or other the culture is trying to learn to, mm. to uh, to be sharing in some way or other. Yeah. Uh, and so on. But uh, that uh, that that ending of the poem, mm -hmm. that ceremonious ending of the poem is is so earned mm -hmm. by it that uh, thank you. I just uh, Yeah, I was thinking I, I you know I've been really thinking about Grendel a lot uh, yes. and Beowulf uh, partly because I read Toni Morrison has a great essay on how evil has a mother but never has a father and I kept thinking about you know obviously George Floyd and for some reason I just feel and I'll, I'll say I just think that Grendel was probably like was probably an African right like I think Grendel and his mother were probably Africans that lived in like Scandinavia yeah. on the outside of some village in real life. And yeah. this is how they were remembered. And there's a way in which Grendel's mother is my mother is, 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 I think that she is the like black mother <laughs> um, and she doesn't get to speak. Right. And I was thinking about George Floyd calling his mother from heaven yeah. down to her, you know, like to me, it's all the afterlife. And I think like that last, that last line is really wild because that last line is like, of course a mother would want everything, any types of hunger, but not the heaven, the, the hunger of heaven, which is the hunger of death, right? Like I want my child to have everything but that, right? And like, we always think of heaven as a like solace or a, but like, I'm sure mothers want their children to live, you know? And I just think of Grendel's mother as like, yeah. I, I think of her a lot. I think of my mother a lot. Um, because you have another poem about Grendel that also mm -hmm. it, it seemed to be about about what you're saying about this kind of you know um, that that Grendel is called to the hall of the I wanted the language right, but that that he's called to the hall where the these mm -hmm. great songs, heroic songs and epics, and he's mm -hmm. kind of called and he has to be the monster. Yes. And he can't, there's no way that he can be in the story without being. Mm -hmm. And I when, I, when I was hearing that last line, I wondered whether, you know, um, that she doesn't want heaven because heaven is the heaven of the, of these song cycles yep. um, that are, that are, you know. One of the things that David is, our conversations have taught me, David, is how ancient our struggles are, right? And like our hungers, our desires are, they're, they're, they're in every epic. They're in every, you know, and it's, it's, and there's a way in which for me, you helped me in our conversations touch that part of me that I think is hard to touch in our current moment, partly because I feel like we're in such a solipsistic error that we're not like turning, like 
when when Trump was elected, the thing that I did was I turned back actually to people like Manning Marable and W.E.B. Du Bois. And I started reading Gilgamesh again, because particularly during the pandemic, because I felt like that sort of Gilgamesh's inability to deal with Enkidu's death and how much that grief was just so overwhelming was what I was feeling. And I know what Americans were feeling during COVID, right? Like this, these deaths are overwhelming. And, and it, was only, it was only when I would read and I would read it every morning <laughs> for that first month of the pandemic. I just kept reading Gilgamesh and your translation because there was a way in which Gilgamesh was was us, was me, right? Like he is, he's just overwhelmed. So the, the, one of the things that I think your poems do so well is they're simultaneously like present and contemporary. And then they're also ancient. Right, they're they're being both. They're in joint with the, the time and out of joint with it. Yeah. Yeah, and sort of, uh, it's like ancient, but also right there. This conversation is also also making me think of your Arthur Gold poems. Those conversations that are happening in the Arthur Gold poems in bewilderment, particularly, uh, it's the one. I think it's called, uh, which one? It's Arthur Gold, Rome, December, 1973. And actually it's funny is I'm, I'm kind of, I was reading that last night in preparation for our discussion and it sent me into like a little poem. I actually like, it sent me into thinking about repetition and all the different ways that repetition is partic participating in departure and arrival. And it's, so I was just, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that. Cause I've, I wrote something I might share with you. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't, it's so new and fresh. The paint is super wet on it. So, uh, but it, I, I thought I, I wrote it thinking about our conversation today um, and your work and your, your sort of work in that. Cause that also is in the underworld. The ways that they, those figures, uh, his, his, uh, his wife, mm -hmm. mother, uh, her mother, uh, her aunt, whatever, are like three fates in a, mm -hmm. uh, in, in a sense, and uh, and that uh, they're and they when they get on the bus and they don't know what what's going to happen and they don't know they don't know yet. Arthur had a babe, had a, had a, had a daughter, a wonderful person who was eight years old when he died. Mm. He was only 53 years old. Um, mm. But uh, he sees the children outside the bus, uh, lights in there. It's, it's as if they were, they're, uh, they're in the lights of the bus. They can see them and it's as if they were they were having a party full of balloons and lights and so mm -hmm. on, like a, mm -hmm. like a celebration of that, uh, uh, a celebration of simple celebration of life in a sense, but that isn't taking place that way. It's their own fate. And uh, so that when that heaven sent bus driver, mm -hmm. And they're stepping out to the darkness in some place where they they don't know where they were going, but they step out, and he says, 
It says the only thing that's necessary is a coraggio. Mm -hmm. Yep. I will, I'll read what's the, I'll, I'll read my wet paint. Um, I'm not quite sure what the title will be. Um, it might be the first line. And it borrows heavily from the Arthur Gold poem I was uh, just referring to, and as well as from the Aeneid uh, book six, it plays, it's playing in that, in that register. A forgotten destination, not yet known, death. Or was it fate? Something in me wants to say it, say it again, death, a forgotten destination, not yet known, not yet known, forgotten, death. What am I returning to momentarily? The teeth of the sea, the teeth of, you wouldn't understand that after death, my father's death, my shoulders through the air, my ears in the loud, precious winter light, my mind gathered in the crisis of whispering to itself, death, a forgotten destination, not yet known, all my handling at the shoulder, at the ear, the mind, done at the edge of teeth, all handling after death is done at the edge of teeth. The locust undoing the earth to yell from the trees and the rain, the rain and the smoke and have not charity or light, willing to light mm -hmm. the windows or my father, the child begging to be born. This, the mystery, the dead mumble over and over to us in our sleep in our lovemaking, in the hotel room beneath the lamplight. This is not over, our death. Make it, make it here. I wish I had that poem to put beside Arthur's poem. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. I, I, David, your work is just I told my I told my partner that I could respond to your poems for a lifetime. I could respond to you. I could spend the rest of my life just reading your poems and responding to and just thinking alongside you. You're it's one of those things I I would have never imagined that I would find a friend like you <laughs> and like your poems would would open the world to me and open me to my own poem. Thank you for thinking of me without knowing you were thinking. It's so mutual what you're saying. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Look at that word destination. You know, like a bus's destination. Where is it going? And so, but it's such a big word. Mm -hmm. Also, I realized that maybe the, like, maybe the thing is that the dead aren't asking us to think about destination as much as they're asking us to think that it's not over. Like, like I was thinking about how like my father, that death may be the sign of the needing to be born, that, that, that spirit needs to be born again. Right. So it's like the death is the, 
is the future, right? The death is calling to the future, right? As opposed to it like stopping the present. At like, that's why I say, or my father, ch the child begging to be born. Maybe his death is him begging to be born, right? Like, you know, what happens if that is the actual thing that that's actually what death is. And so that's why it's a celebration, right? I think about in the, in the black church I grew up in, it was supposed to be a celebration, but it was a celebration because you were gonna go to heaven. But what if it's actually a celebration because it's actually allowing for this other thing to occur that is just as big, just the, the, you know, it's this, yeah, I don't know. I've just been thinking about that. Like, I think because my father died right as my first child was being born, was born. And it just seemed like such an interesting moment in exchange. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just thinking. But you make me think these things. I have these thoughts because <laughs> because of your poems it's just one of those things where it's it's a door your poems are such great doors and they open and allow people so much possibility because you offer up like we can do all of this in a poem like everything like i love the, the arthur gold poems because they're literary criticism with Lyman, you know and that takes it back to the idea that everything can happen in poetic verse there's nothing that sits outside the poem god bless <laughs> this is great <laughs> Well, I just want to thank you both uh, for being here today and for for having this conversation and, and letting oh, me letting me have it with you and, and listen to your mm -hmm. listen to your words. Thank you, thank you so much, David. Thank you, Elizabeth. Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry and is affiliated with Public Books. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, "Fly Away." Sound editing is by Claire Ogden. This is Claire's valedictory episode because she is graduating from Brandeis University and we thank her for her skill and her vision and wish her the very best. Production assistance, including website design and social media is done by Nye Kim. Mark DeLello oversees on all technological matters and we appreciate the support of university librarian Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson and of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media and our website. And if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, such as David Cunningham on asymmetrical policing in the United States and Lisa Dillman on translation. And shortly, we will be launching a series of short episodes related to John Plotz's new edited volume, B-Sides, Essays on Forgotten Favorites. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.